You're listening to My Therapist Thinks, a modern mental health podcast. We're your hosts, Andrea Bozia and Mary Beth Samich. We are licensed therapists with a passion for making therapy accessible, relatable, and relevant to your life. Let's get started. All right, so today's episode is about coping skills. And I don't think many people realize at first that there are different types of coping skills. We're going to talk about five different types today. And I know that when clients come in and they, one of the most popular things they ask for is, I need help coping, right? Can I have some coping skills? Can you help me with that? And so I ask them, you know, what are you doing? How are you currently coping with whatever's going on? And sometimes they'll, give me really great examples, sometimes examples that are really not working, and sometimes there's no examples at all. But I will say, and Andrea, I wonder if this is true for you too, is that distraction is often the most common thing that they talk about. So distraction coping methods might include Netflix or Hulu, scrolling on our phones, video games, um, sometimes cleaning. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Is that true for you too? Oh yeah, totally. I'm a total cleaner when it comes to distracting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think we should talk about how distraction is helpful and how it has the major limitations as one of the five types of coping skills. Definitely. I think so too. So I think sometimes distraction gets a bad rap, like, oh, you distracted yourself. But really it can be great for the short term um, because it gives you momentary relief. So if something is really, really bothering you, it takes your mind off it. And typically it's easily accessible, right? So we can just grab our phones and look at something or go on an app and you can work it into your routine. So if you're a person that gets up in the morning and looks at their phone and starts going through their email and kind of like checks out a little bit, it's already something that you do. And we all do this in one way or another, right? Um, Especially after a long day. Sometimes we just want to check out for a little bit. But I do want to make a difference between distraction versus mindful distraction. Um, Because when we're mindfully distracting, these are activities that are intentionally moving your attention from something unwanted. And that something unwanted can be a sensation in your body, it can be a thought, a feeling, or maybe something that you're experiencing in the moment. And we actually recommend mindful distractions for individuals that struggle with impulse control or addiction Or when someone's really having trouble with emotional regulation during conflict, like if they find that they raise their tone really quickly or turn to anger very quickly, Um, if they keep coming back to a distraction when they're confronted by something that's really troubling, like a troubling urge, that can really help them kind of separate between this triggering experience and their urge. And I always just kind of having a plan to do that. But yeah, so distractions can can be really great. Right. I like how you point that out because I agree. I think they do get a bad rap for sure. Um, but I would say in terms of thinking of maybe for lack of better terms, like the cons of distraction, right? The pros and cons. Um, I would say that 
it doesn't really move the underlying energy out of your body. It placates it for the time being. So you're not really releasing anything in this process. You're distracting, literally distracting, maybe ignoring, and and it might arise again, which I think is the risk that comes with distraction as the coping method. Definitely. I think what you're describing is like classic avoidance, right? So when we avoid, uh, our senses essentially become muted and our body transitions to autopilot mode. So in psychology, we refer to this as a form of dissociation. So this is um, sometimes seems kind of like a scary word, like dissociating. Um, It can get a bad rap too, but it's really our brain's natural ability to move away from difficult information in an effort to protect ourselves. And it's a real integral part of our survival system um, to overcome difficult things. You know, in a lower degree of dissociation, like you might do this when you're in a meeting and you have to give a big presentation and you realize you have to go to the bathroom and you really, really have to go, but you can't leave the meeting. So (laughs) a part of your mind actually kind of shuts down that drive of that urge of needing to go to the bathroom so that you can complete the task at hand. So it might be a little silly example, but it's true. That's how it works. It can really serve us um, in critical moments, but there are varying degrees of dissociation and Often when somebody experiences a big T trauma, uh, which means uh, something that's really negatively affected their life from um, consistent physical or emotional abuse to um, experiencing a car accident, they can continue to dissociate to a greater degree when that dissociation no longer serves them in a new setting. Yeah, it's almost kind of like their nervous system becomes stuck in this protective mechanism. Yes, it becomes cyclical. Like we're in a we're in a loop that's hiccuping. I just quickly mentioned this because if you are an individual that's finding that you are leaning towards distraction a lot throughout your day um, to maybe suppress some negative memories or thoughts or even physical sensations. Uh, It's really important to reflect how often you're doing this and what uh, those memories might be because perhaps it's time to get some support from a professional who can help you kind of integrate and metabolize the information that you're trying to avoid so that your mind and body are no longer really seeking that dissociation for comfort. Definitely. I think it's also a really unconscious process at times that people are just kind of leaning on these distractions and not even recognizing that it's something truly deeper that they might be avoiding, like difficult memories or sensations or big T traumas or even little T traumas. True, 100%. Yeah, so I guess we'll move into um, the next coping skill, the second one that we're going to talk about, and it's actually my favorite one, and that's emotional release. And this is the one that I really try to move my clients toward more of um, because it actually moves that energy out of your body and releases it. So it releases the pressure and creates a shift. And it's especially effective for emotions like fear or anger that might manifest in really unhealthy ways. Because we know through research that if we keep these really heavy emotions stored away in our bodies, it can actually result in health conditions or exacerbate them if it's left undealt with. 
So what do I mean by emotional release? Um, like, what is that? Um, strategies like exercise, therapy, um, punching a punching bag, right? Yelling, mm-hmm. maybe screaming for a pillow, singing, dancing, vocal expression, crying, right? Would be emotional expression. Um, and so all of those are examples of emotional release. Yeah. And I really like journaling as well, or just writing down what's bothering you. And then you can leave that where it is, or you can even light it on fire or crumple <laughs> it up. So <laughs> it's your, your choice. Yes. One of the things that I um, talk about a lot with my teenage clients is a rage page. And that is just kind of like a document on your computer or just maybe a page in your journal where you go at it. If you're super angry, you just write all the feelings you're having, what you'd like to say to that person you're angry with. And you know, maybe there's some colorful language in there and that's okay because it's just for you and it's you're expressing and moving that energy out of your body onto the page or onto the screen and then just leave it when you're done and then maybe come back and read it and say, oh my gosh, like, sometimes it's jarring, like how angry we, we truly were. And I find that clients can feel a little grateful that maybe they didn't express those emotions directly to that person, but had an outlet to kind of dump them instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the challenges of emotional release? Because there certainly are challenges that come with every one of these coping skills. That's why they're hard for people to draw upon in in difficult moments. So I would say when it comes to emotional release, finding outlets that are accessible to you and realistic. So for instance, if you don't have a punching bag at home, punching a wall is not an appropriate replacement for that. Mm -hmm. Or if you, I mean, maybe finding a space that you feel comfortable having a good cry is hard because you don't live in a house where vulnerability is really encouraged. I see that a lot. Um, So there are opportunities there, but you have to get creative to meet this need sometimes. And the more consistent you can stay, the better. So for instance, scheduling therapy weekly or biweekly in anticipation of you know, keeping up with this emotional release because it is a need and it's a very natural need, or maybe going to the gym three to five times a week so that you're regularly uh, releasing all of that stored energy. Because the more regular and consistent you are, the less opportunity there is for those emotions to manifest and build. Because when they do that, you're a ticking time bomb. And that's when people find themselves in my office because, you know, they've kind of exploded (laughs) and are realizing like, oh gosh, like uh, maybe I'm not very good at coping and maybe I need some new strategies. And it really is about consistency too. Yeah. I love that you emphasize that um, because we, when we have a routine, we have something that we can come back to. Um, We can rely on that and we have something that works. Yeah, I'm going to let you take number three because um, I know you do so much cognitive work. So number three is thought challenge. So um, one of the ways that you can kind of regain some control with how you are feeling and processing things throughout your life is to um, increase your awareness of what you are thinking and then challenge those thoughts. So our thoughts directly influence how we feel and thereby they influence directly um, how we behave. And typically we can't 
you know, when we're thinking about an emotion, like we're experiencing something that's difficult, we say we're so, so sad about something. We can't, you know, separate that sadness, that emotion, and pick it up and <laughs> and take it out of our bodies, right? We can't remove that feeling easily. But by becoming aware of our thoughts, we have an empowering opportunity. We can challenge the thoughts that may have influenced the development of this feeling and recognize that perhaps these thoughts are maladaptive or they're not serving us. And we can change that more directly. So I always tell my clients, we can't control the thoughts we have. We have hundreds and thousands of automatic thoughts in a day, okay? And they just occur naturally. They're automatic, right? But we can control what thoughts we endorse. Um, So some of the strategies I suggest to clients is to notice when you're experiencing a mood shift and to ask yourself, what was I just thinking, right? Um, Sounds simple, but sometimes it can be a real challenge. But this requires you to pause and to acknowledge, hmm, something's different. What was I just thinking? And if you're having trouble identifying what you may have been thinking, um, you can ask yourself, well, what was I definitely not thinking? (laughs) I like that. So for example, that might be, um, you know, you're hanging out with friends and maybe you start to feel self-conscious. And you weren't even aware of that shift until you started to feel that way. And you're trying to figure out, what was I just telling myself? Well, you probably weren't telling yourself, wow, my friends love me. I love being here. Um, I'm so funny, (laughs) right? Um, And that can kind of lead you to what you may have possibly um, been telling yourself. Yeah. The other strategy that I like is asking yourself, what is the evidence for this thought? Is it based solely on my emotional reasoning? So emotional reasoning applies that I feel it, therefore it must be true, right? I feel like an idiot, so therefore I must be an idiot. Or I feel like my friends don't like me, therefore my friends must hate me. Well, is there any evidence for that? Yeah, there's actually an exercise I like to do with clients to challenge that and and create evidence. So. It's a rational emotive behavior technique, which is a theory of therapy, and um, it's called the ABCDE technique. So it's easy to remember, but A stands for action, right? Like there was, or activating event. So there was an activating event that kind of set this into motion. And then you jump over to C and there was a consequence to that activating event. So at the party, someone says something to you, and then the emotional consequence might've been you feel rejected. Right. But then you have to really focus in on that B in between A and C and say, what is the belief? That what's the underlying belief? Is it that, you know, they don't like me? Uh, maybe that's what it is. Whatever it is, identifying that underlying belief and then creating evidence to challenge that belief. Right. Well, if they didn't like me, I wouldn't be invited. Mm-hmm. Right. And, or <clears throat> they just spent all this time like, telling me all these nice things and uh, we've been friends for a long time and just whatever evidence you can come up with that challenges that underlying belief in order to create an effective new belief. 
So walking through these steps can be really helpful and just breaking it down like that and recognizing what your belief is, what evidence you have to challenge it, and what a more effective new belief might be for you. Yeah, that's a great strategy and it can really help gain some clarity in the moment. And by no means is this like a simple thing to just start doing. Um, It's a straightforward approach, but it can be really challenging. So if this is something new that you're trying, um, I hope you give yourself some grace because our thoughts can feel, um, even though they might not be uh, true, can feel very real. Um, So acknowledging that and being able to be like, hmm, am I disqualifying the positive a lot here? Am, Am I willing to contradict this thought right now um, so that I can feel better later or the next time I'm put in this situation? And I'm hearing a lot of cognitive distortions in this one too. I think part of this is just challenging your cognitive distortions, emotional reasoning, disqualifying the positive, maybe some black and white thinking and challenging those things. So it's a lot of unhelpful thought work. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and being a, a, an individual and a therapist that leans towards the cognitive, um, I really appreciate these strategies, but I know that there are limitations to just staying cognitive um, when trying to address um, like emotional distress, right? Because there's always going to be underlying emotions and we can't necessarily think a way that we feel or think away the way that we, that we feel. Yeah. Right. I love that you pointed that out. I've done some somatic work and somatic training, which is all about where emotions are held in our bodies. And it's not just always our thoughts. Like our nervous system holds these responses and these reactions and they manifest in that way. So um, one of the things that somatic therapists say often is show, not tell. So show yourself that you're safe. Sometimes it's not just effective to tell yourself these things or to tell yourself certain things. And that's why many of my clients don't find affirmations effective. Or when a therapist tells them, just say these affirmations, say like, I am beautiful. I am smart in the mirror every day. And they try to do that. And it's ineffective because they don't believe themselves. And they're still holding these emotions in their bodies that don't align with what they're saying to themselves in the mirror. So I see a lot of frustration around that when the somatic piece and and the bodily piece isn't incorporated. Definitely. You know, thought challenging is really a top-down approach. And I don't think it fully appreciates the bottom-up approach of being able to integrate how our nervous system processes our thoughts and our emotions. So Uh, I love talking about somatic therapy and that lens of well-being. So perhaps this is something we can break down more in a future session if, or not session, a future podcast if um, people are interested. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great plan. I guess moving on to the fourth type of coping um, is grounding. And whenever I bring this up with teenagers, they're like, excuse me, what? Grounding? I don't need any more of that. (laughs) But we're not talking about that kind of grounding. Grounding is actually a mindfulness practice. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Did you just get my joke? No. It's true. It's so true. 
that is a reaction I get often. And and for you, guys, Andrea is like the, the mindfulness guru over here. Like she's trained in all of the um, mindfulness approaches. She's a yoga teacher. So I feel like you're so tuned into grounding. Um, but for those of us who aren't, who are like, what the heck are you talking about? Um, it's all about connecting with your body maybe through meditation or mindful breathing, a body scan, orienting, which is visually bringing yourself into the present moment, Um, EFT tapping. So that's emotional freedom technique tapping um, on the meridian lines of your body to kind of center yourself. And so I think there are a lot of benefits to this and some challenges. So the benefits would be, you know, when we're in the present moment, we have a sense of protection from anxiety. Because anxiety is attached to either the past, an experience you had before that causes you to feel triggered now, or the future, an experience you're anticipating. So if you're in the present moment, in a way you're protected from anxiety. Um, And that's why people who have really mastered meditation practices are often much less anxious. But this goes without saying there are some serious challenges to that. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my experience with mindfulness. Um, when we, when Andrea and I were at Columbia in our foundations class together, our professor would always ask us to start the class with a mindfulness meditation practice to center ourselves before going and practicing our counseling skills. And so we'd like sit in a group and she would lead us through and she would say, Um, you know, just focus on your breath. And if your mind wanders, uh, just tell yourself, you know, my mind has wandered and then refocus on your breath and really connect to your breath. And here I am super type A, Enneagram three in New York city. So overstimulated in an Ivy league program, pretty anxious, just in general, based on everything. And here I am sitting here trying to do this. And I'm like, my mind has wandered. My mind has wandered. My mind is wandered. <laughs> and Andrea's probably over there, like super in her Zen breathing moment. But I'm not true. Yeah. <laughs> I am <clears throat> sorry. I'm here struggling with this. And then I had to learn that it is just like a muscle, right? It's just like working out. It's just like building and training a muscle. The more you do it, the easier it's going to become. And the stronger that muscle is going to get. And in this case, that muscle is your brain. Um, So it really just takes practice and buying into it. And I can completely empathize with people who feel frustrated by trying to do this and not feeling that they're doing it well at first. Um, It's especially difficult for people with anxiety or anyone who has any difficulty connecting with their body or slowing their racing thoughts or even just leaning into it as a practice. I think some of my clients have said, like, it feels kind of like woo-woo for me. Um, And if you haven't been exposed to it, I think that makes sense. Um, But it's worth having an open mind about and really giving a try. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's a really um, relatable and, and honest story. And I've definitely been there too. My mind wanders a lot especially when I'm in meditation. And something that I just want to share is that, and and this really helped me through my meditative practices and journey, is that there's no wrong way to do it. You just like exhale and be like, okay, well, what does that mean? (laughs) But it's true. If your intention is to sit down and notice your inhale for 
five seconds and you sit down and you noticed your inhale, you did it. (laughs) We try to kind of grade ourselves on a spectrum almost at all times, right? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this good enough? But knowing that you have the permission to release yourself from those expectations and that being is enough. Showing up is enough. I hope that makes sense. It makes total sense. And that's something I really had to accept in my own practice, right? Like done is better than perfect, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. I didn't do it how I perfectly want to, but I showed up for myself in that practice and doing a little is better than nothing. Yeah. I love that. We're already to our fifth coping type. And that is simply self-care. And I think self-care has become this like trend in the mental health and wellness space. And we hear all about it. And I kind of have this aversion to the idea that it is all like manicures and bubble baths or things that cost money, um, Starbucks, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just also want to remind you that it can also involve things that are very basic. So things like stepping out on your porch and getting some fresh air or going to the park and laying in the sun or journaling or quiet time or stretching. All of these things count as self-care. And maybe there are some things like manicures and bubble baths and um, Starbucks that you like to do too in addition, but there shouldn't be any pressure around those. Like You can make it very simple, very basic, and it can still feel really good. Mm -hmm. But the challenge here is to prioritize yourself and to make the time guilt-free. So learning to put yourself first. And when I talk to moms, especially that I work with, they struggle with this. I think culturally, many moms receive a message of put your kids first, put your kids before yourself. And I often do a lot of work with them around the idea of put your own gas mask on first, right? Just like they tell you on the planes, like you need to put your own gas mask first, as a priority for you to be able to then help others, especially your children, right? You can't be your best self for them if you don't operate that way. So, and as therapists too, this is so important also. And occasionally I'll have to check myself on this, right? Because especially right now, I mean, we're in the COVID pandemic and needs for mental health care or in my opinion, at an all-time high. And I think research is showing that too. And so I am the busiest I've ever been in my practice right now. And I am—I get excited about showing up for my clients and that's my passion and I want to be there and, and help them all. And so I've had to really check myself in this season and say, okay, this isn't sustainable and I'm going to need to shift again to show up as my best self for my clients. And I kind of have had that feeling and that thought throughout the past week or two, especially, and said, you know, I think I really maybe need to take a day trip to the beach, or I need to schedule in a massage and, and just kind of time block my schedule in a way that feels like it's supportive of more self-care for myself so that I can be my best therapist self for my clients. Yeah. I love that you shared that. I think it's really important to be able to honor yourself, right? And to really find the place within yourself where you create space for self-love 
I think this can be really challenging and even triggering for some people, especially helpers, because for a lot of helpers and caretakers, you know, fall in this role um, as well of when they aren't feeling well, they tend to direct even more energy towards others, right? Of like, oh, I can't let this person down. And unfortunately, it leaves people running on empty a lot. So being able to prioritize yourself and um, being able to manage the guilt that you feel or that you may feel from doing that, because guilt only serves us if it's teaching us something. And if there's not a teachable lesson with it, we can allow ourselves to release it. And perhaps we release it um, with some of the ways that we discussed at the beginning of the podcast. And sometimes it's more appropriate to use one style over another, right? I think the more you get to know yourself and understand what may lead you to lean toward a particular style of coping, maybe out of these five, the better you'll be able to gauge whether that coping style is actually benefiting you. So we really encourage you to find something that you haven't done before. Um, You know, whether that's a grounding practice or challenging yourself to find new methods of emotional release, trying something new. And remembering that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and that different styles work for different people. And it's often a learning process and a journey to figure that out. Thank you for inviting us into your day. We hope you enjoyed the information shared in this episode. As a reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. We encourage you to reach out to a licensed mental health professional to support you in continued growth. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes launch, to rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at ABC Therapy and at Your Journey Through.